Well, let's go ahead and pray. We'll get into this uh, parable and uh, talk about some of the things that are here. Lord, we thank you uh, for uh, your word that uh, you did not uh, leave us without any guidance of what's happening next. Uh, You are God, and so you're infinite in your ways, your understanding, and uh, the plans of what happens in this world is what you've allowed. Uh, and uh, what you are by command uh, having happened. So uh, we understand that you know what's happening next, and we're thankful for uh, passages of scriptures that just tell us to get ready and remind us of that uh, truth, uh, that you are uh, having a plan, that you are going to have your son come back, and that we just need to be ready and prepared uh, in our own souls personally. We love you. Thank you for your word. It gives us light, and we praise you in Christ's name. Amen. Matthew chapter 25, as you're turning there, do want to just uh, simply give you an update on what's going on in the land of Israel. Um, if you didn't realize, the name of the attack on the nation of Israel by Hamas was called El Aqsa Wave. And you say, why did they name it El Aqsa? Uh, A-Q-S-A is what uh, we would read it as, but El Aqsa, why, why did they call it that, the, the wave? On the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, which is about 450 yards by 150 yards wide, on the Temple Mount there, on the south edge, there is a mosque that uh, contains about five to 10,000 people. Uh, you can have that amount of people in that area in a mosque. And the importance of that is that that's the place that supposedly Muhammad ascended to heaven. It's actually more sacred to them than the Dome and the Rock. Um, but their declared intention was to wipe Israel out, all Jews out, so that they could have Jerusalem and it would be theirs alone. That, that is their declaration. That's why they did this. This is their, their goal. That's why they named it El-Aqsa, is that they are looking to exterminate the Jews in order to have Jerusalem back for themselves to protect Al-Aqsa Mosque. They claim that uh, they made this attack because there was Jewish individuals that got up on the Temple Mount the day before during the Feast of Booths, that uh, they had gotten there and they weren't supposed to be there, and they claimed that they suddenly had this attack in response, which, if you know anything about this, they've been coordinating for months and months and months. This was not a, a uprising response to the fact that, you know, the the Jews had somehow gotten on the Temple Mount without their permission and had a whole bunch of people that were there. Um, but whatever the case may be, it is interesting that that's what they called it, and it's, it is for the extermination of the Jews so that they can own Jerusalem. That's it. I mean, there, there is no other goal. Um, and, um, you know, you say, do all the Palestinians believe that? No. But you've radicalized a certain group that believe that's what they're supposed to be doing. And... Um, calling for others to do it but uh it's interesting we just you know any jews hearing that and any palestinians hearing that would have automatically gone to that place on the temple mount that is uh the location that the palestinians are wanting absolute and total control over uh in that region so um if you didn't pick that up that's just you know that's something that you're not getting much in the news as to what's going on on that but that's part of what's going on over there in that region of the world. <clears throat> Talking about end time events, we're continuing these parables as we get to the last of these parables. We've got uh, at least two more besides this. They're talking about things happening in the future. 
as the Lord uh, just kind of lays them out for us in this parable. So you have in your notes, the previous context, it's contained in the Olivet Discourse. It's the longest uh, section, Matthew 24, 25, Luke uh, 13, Mark, uh, or Luke uh, 21, 22, if I remember correctly, uh, Mark 13. These are the lengthiest passages that record a continuous statement of the Lord about what's going to happen in the future. And um, in this, you're, you're told that the end is coming, that there is a coming end to be expected, that there are going to be events that lead to this, that in many ways seem, as we would describe them, apocalyptic, which is just the word revelation, uh, but uh, revelation's filled with uh, terrifying events. Uh, and, um, you know, that the end is coming, and at the end where it seems like there's no hope that the world's going to collapse on itself politically, the stuff happening in the skies, uh, that the Lord is going to come back you're going to have all this happen. But some will not be ready when the Lord comes back. The previous parables that we had last week uh, called for faithfulness and, anybody remember the other thing it called for? It said two things, faithfulness and watchfulness. Very good from the back as they come in the door. Uh, watchfulness. Those are the two things that the parables we had, the wise, uh, the, excuse me, the faithful porter as he's watching for the master to come back. Uh, you had the um, good house owner uh, that is uh, watching for the thief or is realizing that that's uh, the night is when thieves come. It's a surprise. Uh, so you have to be ready regardless. And then the wise servant, uh, all three of those parables are promoting the fact of faithfulness and watchfulness. If you're watching, you'll be faithful. If you're faithful, you'll be watching. They're connected. This one, as we'll get into it, seems to be promoting the same thing, but it's, it's emphasizing a, a different thing for people, and uh, we'll get into this because it's not so much the watchfulness aspect or the faithfulness aspect, it's something else. What we're going to look at is what is known as the parable of the ten virgins, and it starts in verse 1, goes down to verse 13, so let's just read through it here and then talk about uh, at least the cultural aspects of this that we don't regularly understand. It says, verse 1, Then shall the kingdom of heaven be likened unto ten virgins, which took their lamps and went forth to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were all wise, and five were foolish. They that were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them, but the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. While the bridegroom tarried, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight there was a cry made, Behold, the bridegroom cometh, go ye out to meet him. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said unto the wise, Give us of your oil, for our lamps are gone out. But the wise answered, saying, Not so, lest there be not enough for us and you, but go ye out rather and sell, or to, to them that sell, and buy for yourselves. And while they went out to buy, the bridegroom came, and, and they were, that were ready went in with him to the marriage, and the door was shut. Afterwards came also the other virgins, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Verily I say unto you, I know ye, or I know you not. Watch therefore, for ye know neither the day nor the hour wherein the Son of Man cometh. For us, we have to, with this parable, become aware of how they did weddings back in this culture 
it was much different than what we do here, though, in talking with uh, Marnie Krauss a couple weeks ago. There were some aspects of what they do in their culture that's going right back to this culture uh, some 2,000 years before. Uh, but typically what would happen is that you would have an individual, uh, you know, the guy would come along and say, I want to marry your daughter, and there would be a bargain price worked out. Okay, it would be known as the dowry or the bride price is what it would be. And uh, it would be something that uh, the father set. He got to choose the, what the price would be uh, and do this. Uh, Marnie was talking about that she watched a ceremony like this while she was over in Cameroon. A guy came up and was like, I need a ride to get to my, you know, my, my engagement. They were like, okay. So they stuck him in the back and they drove him there and they sat in the back and watched this. And, and what you had there was that all the family, uh, all the, the male family members of this guy, the girl that was going to be wed eventually were there and they're just going through to the guy and they go, we'd like a computer, you know, like a moped, whatever. And they're just going through and listing off what they wanted so that he could be able to marry this young lady. And if he paid these things off, and it was a public ceremony, if he paid these things off that were declared by these individuals, he could marry this girl. Uh, You had this in ancient culture. This is very typical. You'd have uh, the bride price or the dowry, the payment to the parents, whatever you call it, uh, was a regular thing. You usually had about a year, and then you had the marriage ceremony, and the marriage ceremony worked this way. The bride was at her father's house. And what would happen then is that uh, you'd have the day that the wedding feast was supposed to take place. You'd have the groom at his father's house. He would go to where the bride was at, at her father's house. He would make payment, make good the payment that was agreed on as far as the bargain. And then he would bring his wife. And as they would come back, there would be a procession that would form. People are waiting for this uh, to come along, and they would join the procession and go in to the wedding feast. Now, what would happen sometimes is this would happen, and you can guess with some people who are not as scrupulous as others, uh, what you would have is this, is that the groom would get to pick up the the bride that's there, make the payment, and it would be this. Oh, oh, we didn't agree on that. You know, we, we agreed for more. You're going, that wouldn't happen. We live in a world of fallen people, okay? It would happen. And uh, so sometimes that would delay because then they're bargaining back and forth and going, wait a second, okay? And you'd have some last-minute bargaining going on. The payment would be made. The bride would be gotten. The families would come back uh, with her, and uh, then they'd go to the the groom's house for the marriage festival, the marriage feast. So that's, that's kind of the, the opposite, you know, a little bit different than what we kind of are expecting uh, when this takes place. And as you have the notes there, wedding's different. Back then, bride at parents' house, groom would have been at her house, or would be a come to her house, take her back to his house. On his way, the people would be in line waiting for the groom to come back. They would, and the blank there is, join the procession into the marriage feast at the house, If one was not a part of the procession, that one did not get to go into the feast. You weren't there when the doors closed because you were entering with the parade procession. You were locked out. You go, why? Because everybody else is wanting to be a part of this festival and they don't want to have to man the door letting people in and out. You know, so the doors closed. You you weren't there with the procession when everything was going on. You know, too bad. 
So what we have is that's all the background. And for people back in Jesus's culture, they would have understood all those details. To them, it would have just been the norm. And then he focuses in on what we call the 10 virgins. Now, we have to stop for a second and go, these are not bridesmaids. Okay? In fact, you just read through the story. Is there any mention of the bride? Not a single word about the bride. Just about the groom. That he's gone away, he's coming back. Uh, in our culture, if you think how weddings typically take, take place, it's the, the bridesmaids are with the bride and they're making sure that their hair is finely coiffed and, and everything's being taken care of, that the makeup is right and the shoes are there and everything's steamed and, and everything and they're making sure they've gotten fed and all of this stuff that goes on as part of a wedding. But that's not what's going on here. We, these, these 10 women are not there at the bride's house waiting for the groom to show up so that they can finally go and you know they've got the bride off and whatever. These are individuals that are part of the wedding procession. They seem to be responsible for the lighting. And that's their responsibility as part of the procession here to make sure that at night people can see. And when you look at this, the, the parable's told, and they were waiting for the groom to come back uh, to the house for the wedding feast. The individuals had to wait well into the night for the groom to return. In fact, the crowd had fallen asleep. There's the blank. Uh, fallen asleep, waiting for his return. So this is why some you know, indicated the fact that maybe this is you know, a bargain going on and whatever, and so delays from the groom coming back, not totally unusual uh, for this, but it had gone long enough into the night and a lot of the marriage feasts did take place at night. Uh, some of them actually took place over several days. Um, <clears throat> two or three, four days sometimes you do that, and you're thinking as a father, I can't imagine paying for that, but it wouldn't be that you're paying, it wouldn't be the bride's father, it would be the groom's dad, <laughs> uh, and the groom uh, himself paying for that uh, party. But... Uh, Anyhow, so it would take place at night, and they're, they're waiting there, and it gets to the point where people fall asleep. It's well into the night. And what happens is that a messenger arrives, warn of the groom's approach. The ten virgins had a lamp with them. Now, typically back in that culture, and I, I didn't bring it out of my office again here, I could go run to my office and get it, but I, I'm, I think you probably are well aware of what it might look like. Um, they would have a lamp either that was kind of an open bowl that had a compressed side to it, and it would, you'd pour the oil into it, you'd have a wick come to out through that compressed area, and you'd light it, and it worked like a candle. Or you would have something that would be a little bit more mobile so you could walk around, not spilling oil all over the place, uh, because you have an open bowl. Uh, you would have something that would look like a, uh, an Aladdin lamp, you know, it would have a, you know, the lid on top of it and this kind of hook that would come out of it and you would light this uh, wick and you'd, the oil would be self-contained. Problem is, is at a parade, that's not going to provide much light. You know, you got a candle, you're outside. And the second thing is, is that it would probably, what? Wind blow out, Okay. What we're probably talking about here is that these ladies have torches. 
which would require oil also. And what you did is that you, you poured uh, oil onto what was ever on top of that, uh, the torch that was there. It would light for a while until it ran out, and then you would have to re-pour oil in. If you had a large enough container of oil, you would dip the torch in there and then light it, um, whatever the case is. But these are, they're, they're trying to be portable here, so they've got uh, the five wise uh, virgins have oil that's extra that would be in a jar that would be capped. And when you needed more oil, you would pour it on there. Well, it seems like that these torches were burning while people waited and were waiting, and these five foolish virgins are all of a sudden going, we don't have enough oil. We, you know, our, our, our torches have gone out. We don't have any extra oil. And in your notes, uh, what you have at the bottom of the page there is a jar of extra oil would be needed to keep the lamps lit. That would be uh, a person who's prepared would have that that extra supply. You get to the top of the page, and the five of the virgins who were wise was because they were prepared for the groom's coming. Five others were foolish because they had not prepared. They tried to beg the other wise virgins for oil, but the wise would not give any because then they would not be prepared. You know, it's like, oh, that's, that's cruel and heartless. It's, it's not their fault, I mean, I I remember this statement, and I've had to work with people like this, that your lack of planning is not an emergency on my part. You ever hear that statement? You know, just because you didn't plan and your lack of planning doesn't suddenly mean that I have an emergency on my hands. You're the one who did this. I mean, that's kind of what goes on here. They're going, well, if we provide you some of the oil of ours, the torches won't stay lit for as long. We're going to have to go out to get oil. We're prepared. You go out and you go to the local merchant and see if you can find a wake him up and see if he's willing to sell to you, which would require perhaps him going down to the market stalls where he would have this oil at, uh, getting it out for them and selling it to him. And my guess is he probably charged a, a higher price than he normally would, sort of like us when we order from someplace and we want the shipping real quick. You know, we pay extra for it. I think that would have been the case here. And they finally are able to run back. And you have here, the foolish virgins had to run off to wake a merchant that would be, the blank there, willing to sell oil at that time of the night. By the time the foolish virgins got back, the wedding party had already entered into the groom's house for the festivities. The gate was closed, or the door was closed. And the foolish virgins beat on the door to be let in. They're crying, Lord, Lord, let us in. The groom himself, I mean, this is not a servant that he sends out there. The groom actually shows up at the door. And that's significant when you think about, you know, when it comes to final judgment for individuals, it's the Lord who hands this out. But here you have this uh, individual, the groom, who comes to the door, and he makes kind of a weird statement, if you think about it, verse 12, verily I say unto you, I know you not. You're like, well, wait a second, these were people who were part of the, the wedding procession and whatever else, and that doesn't seem to, to be, make any sense, is the bottom notes there is that he didn't seem to recognize them. But there's more to it than this. He doesn't know them because they hadn't bothered to be a part of the, fee, the, the, the festival and proceedings beforehand. And it's like, if you're not a part of that and you haven't taken part in that, you know, I really don't know who you are. You're not really a friend. You're not family member. You're not, I mean, who are you? that are suddenly coming late uh, to this, not a part of the procession. I don't know who you are. Sorry, you're not entering. 
And end of story for those individuals in the story. I mean, it seems kind of harsh, but, you know, couldn't you just open the door and let them in and whatever, but that's not really how it was supposed to be. If you were a part of the wedding, you would be part of that wedding feast, or excuse me, the wedding procession that led to the feast. To not be a part of that, you're really not part of the in crowd that would be family or friends. Now, what is the lesson of this? And the lesson of this is different than the previous ones. The, the previous parables, as your note says here, Jesus gave the reminder that one knows, or, and I, I need to fix this, okay? I printed a bunch of these this morning, and we went through this, and it was like, wait a second. That no one knows, okay? So like the par- previous parables, Jesus gave the reminder that no one knows. However, there is one that knows, and you go, who's that God? But we're, we're talking about persons, here. No one knows the day or the hour that he will come back. In the previous parables, this statement was given to encourage watchfulness. However, in this parable, the emphasis is slightly different. It is, and I'm going to use this phrase, it's preparedness. Preparedness. It's not watchfulness or faithfulness, it's preparedness. Those who are here when the Lord comes to earth need to be prepared to meet him in advance. They cannot, and here's a very important blank there, they cannot borrow the prep of others. They are personally responsible to be prepared. Okay, you can't borrow someone else's preparedness when it comes to meeting Christ. I mean, that, that's part of it here. You know, can we borrow your oil? No. We're prepared. You aren't. Go out and get your, you know, go and get prepared yourself. Um, that is the element that's here. Understand, a person doesn't get into heaven because they've got a national connection. I mean, there's some Jews that are just simply going at the time of Jesus, oh, we'll be in heaven because we're Jewish. No. There's others, you think, in our day that people go, hey, my family goes to church and are part of a good family. Okay, you don't get into heaven on your, your family's reputation and who they are. It's not that. It's whether or not you yourself personally are prepared for the Lord to come back. Now, the question is, what does it mean to be prepared? And in the way Jesus would be understanding or explaining this would be this. In the time when Jesus first came to earth, Okay, the beginning of the Gospels where his ministry started and he's uh, there at the age of 30 and John the Baptist is preaching. The message was to repent. Okay, you need to recognize yourself as sinful and believe the good news, which at John's and Jesus' time, there's a king coming and you need to be prepared to meet him and look for him and accept him when he comes. That would be the message. What's the message at the second coming when Jesus comes back a second time? It's the same. Repent of your sins. That's the one blank that's there. Uh, Repent of sins and believe the good news. You go, what's the good news? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ died for your sins. He's the one you've got to accept and believe on. And that's the, the preparedness for the second coming. And so the emphasis is not on, you know, watching for the Lord to come back, faithfulness during that time. It's just simply this. Are you prepared to meet him? And there is this way to be prepared. 
And you would say, well, what's a person that is thinking ahead in life? I mean, this is how wisdom and foolishness is sometimes described. A wise person is one who thinks ahead. A foolish person, you know, you read through Proverbs, a foolish person is who, the one who looks to things right now and says, uh, and thinks about those things right now, not thinking about consequences, not thinking about results, not thinking about future problems that might be caused by that. A wise person thinks about that. And in this case, here you got the wise ones who are prepared. They had extra oil in case there was a problem. They were prepared for that. Whereas the other ones hadn't even thought about that. They were just like, okay, you know, we're attending this procession and didn't even think about the fact that it might go longer than what they thought and they wouldn't be prepared. So that's the emphasis of this one, that individuals are responsible to be prepared when the Lord comes back for us. It could be that the Lord comes and takes us uh, in death. You're prepared for that. You know, in the time of the tribulation, it's going to be this. Are you ready when the Lord comes back? And he separates out those that are there that are not following him to not be a part of the kingdom, to be consigned to hell, Hades for a time, for a thousand years until, you know, the Lord comes back and you have those that are prepared get to go right into the kingdom, physically go right into the kingdom and enjoy being a part of that. Um, and it all comes down to being prepared. So any questions, thoughts on this one? I mean, it, it's, it's kind of the Lord's... Um, you know, he's been talking about watch and be ready, but now he's just saying you, you need to be prepared and, and there were some in that crowd that he was talking to that, you know, they, were, they thought they were okay, they're Jewish, you know, we're going to make it into heaven someday, we're fine, and they, they weren't prepared themselves uh, personally and the like. So, but any thoughts? Natalie? Is there any way that we need to be more prepared than just salvation? I mean, besides that? Um... I mean, if a person's prepared, they are also going to be faithful and ready to respond in an instant. I mean, it, that's going to go along with it. So, but that's not the emphasis of this one. I mean, he's, he's trying to emphasize something that would be, you know, really the, the necessary thing of faithfulness and, and those type of things. People going, well, I'm faithful, I'm watching. And it's like, well, have you accepted the sun? It doesn't matter if you haven't accepted the sun and you're watching. No, you're not going to get to heaven because you're just going, oh, the Lord may come back. Great. Have you accepted him and his sacrifice? Uh, so, yeah, I mean, there are other things beyond that, but this one, the, pr- the preparedness is having this. Uh, somebody, you know, said this morning, and, and it, you'll read some commentaries and the like, and, and um, back in, in the old days, there were some interpreters that would interpret the oil as being the Holy Spirit. So here these people have the Holy Spirit, so they're prepared, and you're going... Um, okay, I have a problem with this if you take that far enough in the parable because you have individuals who go out and get the Holy Spirit and then show up at the door and aren't allowed in. You're kind of going, wait a second, that doesn't make sense. Uh, So, you know, that is not a a good interpretation where you're looking at that story and say, oh, oh, the oil, that's, you know, other places it does symbolize, you know, the Holy Spirit and His working. It's not here. That's not the issue because if you take that interpretation and go the oil represents the Holy Spirit, yeah, you got people who got the Holy Spirit but are standing outside the door and aren't invited in. And you're going, no, because anyone who has the Holy Ghost dwelling in them as a result of salvation in Christ, 
that is a down payment. I mean, you think about what the Holy Spirit is. He's the earnest of the inheritance. If you have the Holy Spirit, which if you're saved, you get the Holy Spirit dwelling in you, he's a down payment of things to come. That's what an earnest is. You bought a house, you put down earnest money because you're saying, I'm in earnest to buy this house. Well, that's what the Holy Spirit is. He's a down payment uh, on you getting a greater thing, which is to be with God forever and have God as your inheritance forever to be a part of him and or part of his life and fellowship with him uh, throughout all eternity. So there is, you know, there is that element. And so some of you may, you know, read some of the older commentators and they'll go, oh, I, you know, I, I think it's the Holy Spirit. And you're going, hmm, well, if I take your line of reasoning we got a theological problem um, with what the rest of the Scripture tells us when it comes to the Holy Spirit. So, Steve? I think I know what you're going to say, but I'll ask it anyway. There are no dumb questions. <laughs> yes, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, as teachers would say. Go ahead. What's the significance of the five and five? It's not, I always think it's not random. It's got to mean something. And I'm not into numerology, but it just seems like that's an interesting mm-hmm. 50%. It'd be easy with 10 to divide it any way and go 10 or 20 or 30. Yeah, 10, 10 seems to be a number that's used often in the Scripture to symbolize something. Um, if it was 3 and 7 or 9 and 1, you know, but it was right in the middle. You know, five. I, I, was, I was thinking about this uh, yesterday because I was listening to someone discuss uh, the story of David and Goliath. And was there any significance of five stones in that story? You know, what's, what's the significance? Why did he pick up five? And the only other thing mentioned in 1 Samuel that's five, there's five of something. Anybody know what the other thing is? Well, no, and the, the whole story of Samuel, there was another thing that there was five of something in the book of 1 Samuel. There were five Philistine cities. And so, you know, the one commentator goes, I don't know that there's anything significant about the five. You know, maybe he just picked up five and was like, okay, but it makes, you know, it doesn't say he picks up a, you know, a bunch of stones and sticks them in the thing. He picks up five. And you're kind of going, so what does this mean? And the commentator that was on there is, is listening to him talk. He goes, could have been that, you know, here you had Goliath of Gath, which was one of the Philistine cities. What if you have four others that are, you know, the same size? And uh, you've got to take them down. He's got a champion, you know, he's got a rock for each champion of those Philistine cities. Is that biblical? Is that really true? I have no idea, but that's the only other five in the book. And you kind of go, why five? I don't know. We're, you know, getting into, you know, conjecturing, you know, um, Yeah. So yeah, I, I that number ten, five and five, don't know. There's not really a significance to the number that we can tell. 